I feel like this this episode is sort of our return to form because hopefully the audience doesn't realize that we're we're sitting down now. It's November twenty second as we're recording, and we have not sat down to record in like two weeks. Yeah, and I feel like we haven't truly been doing weekly episodes since what Blue Spirit, the storm. Like we did, we recorded the storm, and then. We recorded through the deserter within the span of like a week or, or two. Yeah. Because between between the election and your wedding and my work schedule, we just it, November has been a time. <laughs> it, it has just been its own little black hole. <laughs> but I feel like this one, you know, we're sitting down, we're getting back into our regular groove of, of watching an episode a we week. We say that, but but we usually record on Thursdays. And Thursdays, Thanksgiving. No, 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 uh, Kelly, Kelly. We're we're gonna fix this. We're getting back on track. This that's why this is the episode where like we're wrenching it in. Gotcha. So this episode gotcha. is the last episode of of the really messy time. Yes, yes. I I can I can screw my head back on <laughs> and focus yeah. instead of like <laughs> worrying about you know. Uh, is it going to snow while I'm out on the deck with, you know, like nine people trying to finally tie the knot with someone who I've been with for nine years? And <laughs> Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. And welcome to the Pie Show. I'm your host, Kelly. And I'm Colton. And today we are discussing Book One, Chapter 17, The Northern Air Temple. This episode, on their continuing journey north, Aang and the others hear rumors about a surviving band of airbenders requiring a visit to the Northern Air Temple. That's an interesting framing. How so? Do you think they would have gone to the Northern Air Temple had they not heard the story? No. They would have just bypassed it completely. I think Aang had kind of given up hope at that point. And this and his focus has now been on, especially after, you know, trying to do firebending and it being a failure. Um, he is even more focused on studying, on learning a new element and mastering it. Because he has six months. So I don't think he would have taken this detour. I feel like they haven't taken as many detours for a while. These kind of detours have just happened to them so far. I can see that. We haven't we haven't gone off the path to go swim with the uh the koi fish. Yeah. Yeah, the elephant koi. Yeah. Okay, I like that. I like that idea that they only went because of it. I just until until you read the summary just now, I didn't really process that. You know, I I watched the episode. I know the story was the impetus for them going, but I don't think I realized that. Oh yeah, they wouldn't have gone but for the story. Yeah, and I feel especially with the past few events for Aang of almost 
for him, it felt like he was almost going to lose Sokka and Katara with Bato, his um, interactions with Zuko and Blue Spirit, and his, what he deems a failure at learning an element and even, you know, a rejection of an element because it can hurt people. He wants something that he can have a win at um, because he really hasn't had those lately. And I feel like he can feel the ticking clock a bit more. At the beginning with this, uh, they're hearing the story about the mythical airbenders and everything. I just, I've been paying attention to people's clothing, and I feel like we talked about this in Omashu, maybe. But uh, is the storyteller wearing Water Tribe gear? It sure looks like it. And it looks like there's more of them in more wearing Water Tribe gear in the audience as well. They have like the big furs and and the pointy shoes Mm -hmm. and the three fingered mittens. Yeah, and it's also it's it's also the colors. Like you can like it, it. You can tell it's colder there, but there are also earth nation people as well because you can see the yellows and the browns and the greens on them um but i thought that was a really cool way to show that they're getting closer like here we are we've been traveling this long to get to the northern water tribe and you're starting to see little like hints of them here and there yeah i think even if even if these people aren't from the northern water tribe they interact with them you know they're trade of yeah. some sort they live in a culture yeah country. they w- they work out of that port or whatever because yeah. it's close enough yeah we're, we're starting to close in but I, I like that that you get that you get that hint of it before you're there yeah yeah did you notice the uh i think they are probably earth kingdom though because their money was earth kingdom the earth kingdom is also a very rich nation in the world of avatar too so that is kind of a default currency for a lot of trade. I've been reading too much Kyoshi lately. <laughs> so we work our way to the Northern Air Temple. Oh, and so did you think airbenders were going to be there the first time you watched it? Yeah, I had hope. Oh, I was like Sokka and said, do you want me to be like you or be realistic? I can see uh, what, 10-year-old Kelly saying yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. But I had hope. I had I had hope that, like, you know, maybe I really love the way that Aang can tell the difference between gliding and flying. From really far away. From really far away and how there's a spirit to it and that he can see that from far away. And it makes me, you know, it makes me wish that we saw a few more scenes of airbenders with their gliders, you know, like true airbenders with their gliders. And we see how Aang treats his glider and how he behaves with it. But what is what is kind of that missing link that he doesn't see when he, when they approach the Northern Air Temple? I mean, I kind of like that we don't get more because I don't know about you, but I recognize that Aang can see the difference and it's very apparent to him. And I understand why he grew up in this world. I did not grow up in that world. I can't see the difference. I like that. I like that you put it that way because once you said that, I was like, you know what? That actually does. It works because it's like, aren't they? Aren't they showing a love for what you do, Aang? Aren't they, you know, and that's kind of, I think, what we ask in this episode in a way are, you know, how do we honor the airbenders? Yeah, and I think it's interesting that that you bring up, you know, he 
he does initially reject the the gliders and you know their technology based version of flying. But when later on in the episode, when you know we'll talk about Teo is explaining Teo. It's been a long week for me. When we talk about Teo, when we <laughs> when we see Teo explaining, you know, what it's like to Katara, Ang joins in the explanation, not to correct what Teo is saying, just to add his own wisdom to it. I, I wanna hold you on that because I I, I do wanna talk about that more. I have a lot more thoughts oh, on you that. Oh, you wanna you wanna save that for later? We'll open it up. Because I just want to I want to talk about Teo's introduction. Okay, let's talk about his introduction and then we can then we can get we, into more. Yeah. Yeah. Then we can get into some more things. I feel like that's a little later because I want to talk about Katara's flying up a flying lesson. I, I have some strong feelings. About just it. Remind me of my point. <laughs> I will. I will. It's it's I have that. I have something like that in there. Okay. Too. Yeah. okay. We meet a new character and his name is Teo. And his joyous laughter at the very beginning when he is gliding through the air just felt so reminiscent of episode one Aang to me. And their whole interaction of like what Aang sees is kind of adversarial at the beginning. Teo is just pranking Aang and uh, having a good time. And it just, they're so alike. I distinctly remember in my first watch of this episode not picking up on any of that. Really? I was so very distracted by the fact that his character model looks like a direct homage to Link from the Legend of Zelda TV show. <laughs> Specifically, the, the really bad... Have you seen that cartoon? Have I made you watch that? No, I have not. It is comically bad. I'll find a picture to send to you. But Teo looks like him. <laughs> and that's all I could think the whole time. I really love this character a lot. And this is our introduction as to how Avatar The Last Airbender treats characters who have disabilities. And I absolutely love it. As someone who has a disability that is mostly invisible, but sometimes very physical, uh, it is very... It means a lot to see it represented on screen. And it means a lot to see it represented on screen and not have it be everything the character is. Because there is a good chunk of time in this where they just straight up don't discuss that that Teo is in a wheelchair. Like, especially this moment for me when watching it, most TV shows that I had seen up to then, it's like, a one-off episode where the main character meets a kid who's new in his class, who's in a wheelchair, and they talk about that the whole time. And, you know, how they ended up in the chair and how they're so different from everyone. And that is not the case with this episode. And the, the other characters don't look at him differently for being in a chair. They treat him like they treat everyone else. And our first introduction to Teo is that he is the best at this gliding. Thing that everyone is doing yeah yeah he is the best like my first time watching this episode i didn't realize he was in a wheelchair until they took the glider off and he was still he stayed in the chair so that's what's really interesting so about that moment it's a really interesting moment because for the audience it's kind of a oh he's in a chair but if you notice everyone else on screen they continue as if it is not a surprise 
surprise as if it is nothing different as if it is you know like that is not a oh moment but for us as an audience that is conditioned that way you know that's it can be it can be that way yeah and i i don't have a, a physical disability but i remember growing up so much of the media that talked about it was you know people that that might have a physical disability are just as good as anyone else and like that was the line that was set and i feel like this this representation isn't you know trying to teach them like it's just a matter of fact like this is just a person this is a person like anyone else it's just the way it is yeah i so i have an issue sometimes with uh things that get posted around or stuff where you know especially when i was going through uh an episode with my disability that was very physical of people calling me so brave and like wow you know how do you how do you do it i'm like how do i get dressed like people were saying i was brave for getting dressed in the morning brave for brushing my teeth and i'm like i just learned to do it like you just do it like anybody else like you wouldn't want you know you wouldn't want someone coming up to you after you brush your teeth and going oh good job you did it oh and giving you that it feels it's it's so um, it feels, it feels, feels bad. You don't like it. It just makes you angry <laughs> sometimes. And so to have the glider come off the chair and it not to be a, oh, wow. Like to hear that in their voices for it to just be flat right across and for them to not change the way that they speak to tail just is so monumental and changes how a lot of other shows treated characters with disabilities. It's just, it was just really refreshing to have it not be mentioned, have it not be the focus of this episode, that Heyo was in a wheelchair. But he can still, like, he is a character in his own way. And pretty cool character at that, too. Yes! Yes, I love his fascination with uh, the air nomads and you know he he finds something that he wants to be a part of and I love that he's also that moment where we're introduced to him he's not intimidated by Aang like you would think you know the first time he's like seeing like someone who can do what he what he can do and everything and maybe even better of like at one point Aang just like jumps off the glider and runs along the side of a building just to show off and Tao's like yeah that's pretty cool but let me try something and then draws a face of Aang, like a silly face of Aang in the sky. And he's like, hey, hey. like he's not, <laughs> he's not backing down. And I really love that about him. The kid's having fun and he sees a guy who can do the thing and he's like, I want to be your friend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel like the second Aang shows up, hey, it was like, you, you're my buddy. You don't know it yet. Yeah. But you're my buddy. <laughs> he's like, oh, I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes me wonder, you know, like, I feel like Teo really sees the kindred spirit before Aang does. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But that makes sense because Teo is looking for someone to connect with. And Aang is look like Aang is walking into all of his interactions with with these people. Understandably so, not the most charitably. Yeah. I mean, it feels like something. If, so let's talk about him walking into the Northern Air Temple. Yeah, let's. It it feels like such a violation to him. 
that they are even there. But I love the coloring when they walk into the temple of just how dark things are with the pipes through the wall. And it's just such a bizarre comparison to how he revisits the Southern Air Temple. In what way? So the Southern Air Temple, he revisits, and he sees things like they used to be. And he's all excited and everything. And it's so bright and cheery. And then you get to the bone graveyard. Here, he walks in and he sees all this darkness and desecration of sacred areas. But there is a joy and life in there that he doesn't really see until he gets to connect to the people. I I did not pick up on that at first because, honestly, I was a little busy empathizing with Aang's frustration. I, I work in a building that is 135 years old. I have a bit of experience with relics and seeing like that piping just punched through the artwork on the wall makes my skin crawl. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm a great big nerd. (laughs) And I'm just like, ooh, pipes, I wonder what steam-powered contraption that's running. (laughs) I had a lot of complex feelings this episode. Yeah, (laughs) I bet. My preservationism and my uh, technology progressive, I don't know. My, My love of technology and my love of preservation were at odds with each other. So you just kept jumping back between like, and mindset, soccer mindset, and yeah. mindset, soccer mindset. <laughs> I was all over the map. <laughs> but I think it's it's really interesting, especially when we meet the mechanist. Yes, that we have that that contrast between Ang, like you said, you know, looking at everything as a desecration, and the mechanist looking at all of the desecration as improvement. Mm. And just the complete opposite view. And I'm not sure which view the episode was trying to say was the right one. I think what I like about this episode is that I feel like it doesn't necessarily pick a side. Yeah. I think that that really threw me. Yeah. I feel like the mechanist... So, first off, I looked up because I was like, he has to have a name. Like, I feel like there was a name. But no, he is just known as the Mechanist. He is Teo's father, but he's also the Mechanist, and that is that is what they call him. Um, but I feel like he's one of one of our first true gray area characters. Like I feel like we've had a lot of characters that we're left to kind of make a decision about, and then they like show their true colors, like Jet. Like we show his true colors of like, oh, he does bad things. Um, or, you know, or Zuko can, can do good things. Like, you know, it's, it's, they kind of cross over that line between black and white a lot. We, we've had it so much. We were both expecting it with Bato and we didn't get it because yes. he showed us our true yes. colors from the beginning and we didn't. Exactly. Still. Exactly. But the mechanist is there and he is very progress for progress sake just trying to push the envelope consistently and feels like he doesn't have too much of a, at the beginning, it feels like he doesn't have too much of a stake in the war. Mm, Yeah. Like here he is in his own little isolation chamber, just like, you know, I felt like very Belle's dad from Beauty and the Beast of just like, oh, look at this new contraption I made today. 
you know? And not much regard for that, like, not, e- not even just the war, but, like, the context of the world that he lives in. Yes. It's bizarre. He feels very bizarre in this world. He is pushing pipes through relics. Yeah. And history without care, viewing it as an improvement. Especially in a temple. This is a temple. It's not just an abandoned town. This is a sacred place that a people of strong spirit used for their religion. But he made an elevator. (laughs) And he's, you know, knocking down walls to make make a bathhouse. And he doesn't, he, I feel like sometimes he can't see things in front of him because he's seeing two steps ahead. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like he can't see the temple for the uh, beauty and preservation that it is because he's like, people are going to start to smell and I need to build a place for people to not smell. (laughs) Which is a valid concern. Yes, very much. It's just like, read the room and, and like actually literally look around and read the room. There's writing on the wall. Literally. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> but I think I think it's an interesting interesting characterization because if we were if we were looking at another franchise, you know, Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or something, like these franchises have that through line of, you know, sometimes technology for technology's sake is not the best. You need balance, you need, you know, an element of nature, all that. And I think Avatar says that from time to time as well. I mean you have the Fire Nation presented as this industrialized, mechanized, war-like society. And that is presented as evil. And the the one force that is standing up to that evil is this deeply spiritual child who is special for his increased ability to be in touch with nature and the elements. Mm. Yeah. But then you have this episode saying that, you know, in that world where all of that is true, it's not, like you said, this, this black and white society. There is a moral gray when it comes to technology, and here it is in this guy mm-hmm. with seven fingers and no eyebrows. <laughs> hey, he's working on the eyebrows. He is working on the eyebrows. <laughs> I really love the contrast of, like, the different kinds of technology that he uses as well. Like, there are all the pipes and, like, um, the, steam, the steam elevators and stuff like that, but the simple glider is technology that the rest of that society did not have prior to him using it like that was something that you know airbenders used gliders because they could fly but what if we were to take the glider and use it ourselves what could we do do you think that's how it started do you think he fully created the glider like of his own inspiration or do you think maybe one of the air nomads left the glider lying around the temple and he found it and adapted it i think stuff i think definitely the temple inspired him to use the gliders and see how they and see how they work he's very much the kind of guy who wants to take things apart to see how you can put it back together and i think it definitely inspired him because like you said there is all that writing on the wall and there are all those things and even um when you're up that high, you can see things such as hawks and other birds and how they're flying. I think it's a natural progression for him to want to take that next step. Well, I think that's interesting because, in a way, then, the 
existence of the gliders is a preservation of airbender culture. And that's what and that's what Teo and Aang try to figure out themselves when they are discussing the gliders and discussing their presence in the northern air temple and even Katara's flying lesson. Yeah. So I I really love how Teo can see he can see where his father is going with all the progress and everything but seeing as he grew up in this northern air temple and has been exploring it for his life for his lifetime he has found his own reverence for the people who used to be there and so I think one of the moments that really stands out to me is when Teo is showing Aang the door to the air temple um, and saying you know I want you to know that there is a piece of you still here, that this is a locked door, like that it hasn't been opened and that, you know, your culture is alive somewhere. And I think what makes a difference for me in that moment also is Teo being understanding when Aang says that he does not feel comfortable opening that to him. Teo's like, can, can I see inside? And Aang says, no, I I don't, I like that that's kept away. And I, I think I want to keep this to myself. And Teo just says, okay. And it was just such a cool lesson in boundaries because you would expect a kid like Teo to be like really pushy because he spent his whole life wondering what's behind that door. But instead, he saw the hurt that Aang was going through and he was respectful of that pain. His empathy outweighed his curiosity and i think that's a major difference between him and his father mm, that little bit of extra airbender in him yes yes he has that touch of spirit and i feel like the mechanist his curiosity outweighs his you know sympathy as to sympathy and empathy as to what his devices can do and will do like he doesn't read he doesn't read the room when Aang is upset about him knocking through a wall. Cute animal alert. All right. So we have, uh, I mean, Ava Momo, some quality moments for them. I want to say this episode because I, I do want to keep them in mind. Appa goes on the offensive in the battle at the end, mm-hmm. um, which is again, we saw that uh, when Appa fought Nyla earlier, and that was one of the first times we saw that. So I just think it's important to point out those moments where Appa decides, nah, I'm going to jump into this battle. Appa views tanks as a threat. Yes. What does Appa view as a threat is kind of what I'm starting to look at. <laughs> Nyla and tanks. Nyla and tanks. <laughs> um, quality Momo moment is uh, Katara's flying scene where Momo's like, I'm gonna get in on this and I'm gonna eat all the bugs that you guys do not want to eat. Good Momo moment. Um, and then I love, there's a mention about Sky Bice and Polo. I'm imagining this game as being identical to Polo, just on a Sky Bison instead of a horse. How big do you think the ball had to be because Sky Bison are so the huge? Exact same size. Like I, it is the exact same game. But you're on a sky bison. I would like to see this. I need to look this up at some point. And I just, I, want, I need them to elaborate more because I am ready for it. I am here if for I'm it. If I'm wrong, please don't tell me I like my headcanon as it is. <laughs> I will keep it that way for you. 
Um, I also love that in this episode that the creatures are keepers of the temple's origins. And so they point out, we now see two of the remaining uh, air nation uh, air nation creatures, which are the hermit crab and the fireflies. And I love how those are incorporated in the, in the episode uh, to for the fireflies to show that you can kind of innovate, that they use them as a natural light source when not wanting to light a spark around natural gas. Mm-hmm. That's pretty innovative. And then the hermit crab. It's like kind of a toss away when they pick up the little hermit crab at the beginning um, when they're when they're walking around with Teo. But later, Aang uses it as the metaphor for how these refugees, how these people have come to live in the shell of the air of the air nation and make it their own home, but also embrace where they have the origins of the temple and how it's a merger of the two. And I thought that was a really beautiful message. Yeah, I I really like that as well. Um, I also think it's really interesting that the Air Nomad thought that hermit crabs were of particular interest and importance because hermit crab, you can make the argument that hermit crabs are kind of nomadic. They they move yeah. from home to home and, and inhabit you know, various places and, and objects. Yeah. And that um, is what the refugees did as well. Mm-hmm. But the, the firefly and the hermit crab are the only known creatures to have remained in the northern air temple following the air nomad genocide. So they have continued to live there and be the keepers of the temple and be that consistency throughout. Um, so yeah, but I want to I wanna give my little cute animal award to the hermit crab this episode. Because I just thought that was such a beautiful message to have that you can merge those two things and um, build a home and have the home be a part of you. I really love that message, but I have to give it to that one particular firefly that made it out of Sokka's jar because it saw the window of opportunity and it took it and I respect that. (laughs) All right, we're giving it up to the creatures of the Northern Air Temple. Do you want to talk about Katara's flying lesson? I do want to talk about Katara's flying lesson. <laughs> Let's talk about Katara's flying lesson. Oh my god. Even though she's been on Appa and she's, she's flown, but like she's never like flown solo. I just, this moment between the three of them, I just, I love it so much because I think this is, this is our time to see that if we haven't seen it yet, Teo does understand the airbender way and he gets it. He, he can't articulate it fully because he has it, you know, almost secondhand wrapped together. But yeah. he might not have the words for it, but he understands that, you know, very difficult to teach core lesson and core foundation. That maybe it's not difficult to teach. Maybe it's unteachable. I I don't know. Yeah. But. Yeah. It he has he has the spirit of it, as Aang says. And I feel like we've been getting little blips of it here and there. To show, but Aang hasn't Aang hasn't been able to open his eyes and see it yet because he's been dealing with the process of grief and feeling violated and his pain. That this is a nice, beautiful moment to take a step back and appreciate it. And I think Aang sees it because he sees Katara's interest 
and Katara's presence is what helps him to get past that pain. Yes, he's been working through it in his own time, but that you know the the final push to get over the hump is I'm going to I'm going to be a little more generous, even if it hurts for Katara. Are you saying that? Katara just being there was able to kind of talk him down off the proverbial ledge. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. As she jumps off a physical ledge. <laughs> well, what I'm also saying is that Katara, simply by being there, was able to heal him. I think what's really interesting about this moment as well is that uh, Aang, for someone we saw as like kind of a little possessive of Katara sometimes, that he... Let's Teo teach this lesson. That Teo's the one running this lesson here. And Aang is just along for the ride. And just, it's kind of um, interesting that it feels like Aang never thought to share that part of his life with Katara Mm -hmm. prior to that moment. And seeing her find that appreciation for what it's like to fly, he's like, I think the people here are actually keeping my culture alive, whether they know it or not. That they're able to show people a path that air nomads used to do. That they can give them that freedom of the sky. Yeah. And he hasn't done that. Like he's you know, he, he hasn't had the time to. I don't know if it's he hasn't had the time to. I think he just genuinely hasn't thought to. That's a good point. He's Yes, he's the Avatar and, you know, in possession of wisdom. He's a 12-year-old kid who's going through a lot. Mm. I I don't think that he has... I don't think that Katara has pushed him to let her into that part of his life. And I, mm. I don't think it's malicious, but I think it just hasn't occurred to him to let her into that part of his life. Yeah, I mean, that's all kind of been second nature to him. I mean, you know, prior to the iceberg situation... It was all second nature to him, and he's lived in a world where everyone knew who the airbenders were, and everyone kind of, like, sort of knew an airbender, but they just straight up haven't existed for a hundred years, dude. They're not going to have that normal idea of an airbender. Yeah, but also on on top of that, I think, you know, he he has a level of expectation of Katara to let him into that part of her life, you know, her waterbending, because he feels maybe entitled to it as the Avatar, but from his perspective, she's not an airbender. She's not the Avatar. Why would she care mm. about airbending? Mm, true, true. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. And that's not a malicious thought. It's just, you know, it genuinely didn't occur to him that she might be interested. So moving forward with the episode, I'm kind of going, I, I'm kind of going more continuity wise mm-hmm. uh, chronological but I I don't know why it just feels like it needs it for this episode it's a very like event like plot based episode this episode takes a lot of twists and turns yeah 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 because after saying no I don't want to I'm not going to open the door Aang's like you know what I'm going to open that door and we get that door animation again you know the one that you like super love that weird <laughs> CG door animation that's totally out of place. I, <laughs> I knew in this episode that it happened again, and I was like so excited because I was like, "Oh, Colton's favorite animation style, oh, this lovely door." It's so bad. <laughs> it doesn't work. Hey, it was 
<laughs> I get why they felt like they should go for it, but it just doesn't work. <laughs> I I wrote down, holy sky bison, does this episode take a turn when that door is opened? I saw you wrote that, and I'm a little disappointed in you. Oh, what's the phrase that I was going to say you more? You should have said, well, I'll be a hog monkey's uncle. Well, I'll be a hog monkey's uncle. <laughs> well, I'll be a hog monkey's uncle. Does this episode take a turn when that door is opened? Yes, it does. I can't believe you're saying that phrase. I can't believe you're actually <laughs> going with that bit. I'm continuing. <laughs> but uh, I still, to this day, when that door opens and the room is just all red and the hall. I like. I noticed this time, like the hall has the yellows of the Air Nation still, and the then the drums are come in so heavy, and the kids are so small in comparison to the large, sharp weapons that are being held in this room. Oh my god! Just oh, it sent chills down my spine, and it does every single time. Did you see this coming? Uh, I don't think I saw this coming my initial watch, but I also don't think I was terribly surprised. Like, it, it wasn't a big oh. like, oh! Like, it's like, yeah, there's the twist. If you're gonna put a twist, you're gonna, like, you know, oh, shock, the guy's working for the enemy. Well, I, for me, I thought they were gonna focus, the first, like, the first time I watch it, and even, like, when I'm watching it, I think, you know, okay, the big thing about this episode is that these new people have moved in and Aang has to come to terms with being part of a dead culture, but also finding a way for that culture to live on. And I think that's a good enough episode on its own. But we're at the end of season one here and we need to up the ante. So we're going to make this guy who's who's doing all this progress and desecrating this temple also making weapons for the bad guys. Yeah. Um, I do think during my initial watch that I didn't quite get it at first. Like, I don't mm. think I realized, like, oh, this room is looked like this because he's making weapons. Like, I don't, I think I needed them to actually explicitly say it for it to click. I think I just thought, oh, yeah, this is, you know, the untouched room from when the Fire Nation conquered the Air Temple. Ah, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> it sent, it sent chills down my spine. And, like, it, it really, um, I feel it really ups the stakes of this episode. Because this, uh, especially up until this moment, we've been watching Sokka bond with the mechanist about various things, talking about natural gas and what they should do in the case of a leak and how do they find leaks and what they should do with natural gas um, and various other items. And so you see Sokka bonding with him and trusting him. And then the doors open and you're like, oh, no, that's a bad guy. You should not be trusting him. Like, that's what my mind flashed to. Mm-hmm. I was like, Sokka's in danger. That was my first thought. Sokka must be in danger. That was not mine. I think I thought much more along the lines of, is this what the whole temple looked like when they got there? If you're working for the Fire Nation and you're in an air temple and the air people are gone, why are you hiding everything in a secret room that only you can access? Why not just be open about it? You seem to be in charge of everything. Why not just, like, why is this a secret? So I feel like for him, uh, because these are all refugees from the Fire Nation living in this temple. Yeah. Do you really think refugees whose villages have been burned down are going to be happy to live with someone 
who's helping burn down more villages. But they're refugees because he took them. Like, it just, it, uh, it doesn't have to be perfectly consistent, but, like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, it, it, oh, it makes perfect it strains sense my belief because he brought the refugees in. I don't think he has any pride in the fact that he's making these weapons for the Fire Nation. I think this is shame. His wife died because of the Fire Nation. So, like, the Fire Nation is, you know, saying, make these weapons or we'll kill everybody else? That That is actually what they say. That is why he is able to keep them safe, because he is providing them with weapons, and they don't attack them. But again, why wait till now to use the weapons? I just, I, I don't, it, and why have the secret room with all of the, with all of the paraphernalia in it? Because he can't have anyone else stumbling across it. But why have it in the first place? Because that's where his workshop is. Why does he need a giant Fire Nation flag in his workshop? That wasn't the Fire Nation flag. That was the war balloon. Oh. It read like a flag to me. That's the war balloon. Okay. They show a, I... a, a little model of it on the shelf earlier that gets knocked over by him and Sokka. Yeah, no, I remember that. That's the war balloon because they show it, then they then they bring it out, and then they show it at the end. Yeah, I didn't realize that the war balloon was the thing in the chamber. I thought it was a giant, like it literally looked like a giant flag. Thing. Yeah, it's it's the war balloon. I am a very competent viewer, ladies and gentlemen. It's amazing what missing one detail will throw you off on. <laughs> just, just a bit. And also, the reason why it's been in there for a while, for the um, what you thought was the like some of those weapons, the big thing that's taking up most of the space is the war balloon, and it's been in there for a while because he can't figure out how to get it to work continually, and Sokka figures it out. Sokka's a genius. Yes, yes. I know I was not on the Sokka is a genius bandwagon the first time I watched the show, but this time around, you have yelled in my ear enough about it that I'm seeing it. You have gotten me to drink the Kool-Aid. Yay! <laughs> I love Sokka's explainer of the well how do you keep a lid on hot air <laughs> and I feel like this is where like we really start to see him think outside the box and he's not just a strategist but he's an inventor as well it's his idea of placing the rotten eggs in the source of the natural gas to find the leak backing up to the quote you pulled do you think he's able to keep a lid on hot air because as we've said Aang has a temper <laughs> like seriously, like keeping a lid on hot air is what he does. Yeah, well, it's what Katara does. It's what they both do. It's what they but both he do. also is yeah. pretty like he more than Katara utilizes Ang's hot air to the mm, group that's advantage. True. Like this is the thing he's been doing. Like Ang is the war balloon in the Team Avatar army. Well, I kind of like that you put that you compare those two because those are also. Uh, to uh, things that turn the tide of the war. Air balloons and egg? Yeah, yeah. War balloons, because prior to that, they talk about, you know, how having the sky, having control of the skies is what puts them at an advantage. Mm, yeah. But, bum, 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 they lose it. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get into the battle at the end, I want to talk about a, a topic that I think this episode brings up really well. Um, we have we have the mechanist who has been working for the Fire Nation. We find out, and everybody 
is mad at him. And then he turns around and he says, yeah, you guys are right. This is bad. I want to do better. I want to basically switch sides. Yeah. And and fight with you guys. And everyone kind of just forgives him and goes with it. And I don't think this is a thing that many other franchises do or would do. Mm. The, the way this show deals with the concept of just regret and forgiveness and, and, and amends, I think it's really powerful because it's really easy to look at the mechanism and say, you did these horrible things. You are horrible and there's nothing you can do to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's not what they do. So you've done these bad things, but you see that it's bad and you don't want to anymore so you can stand next to me. You can stand next to but me also, and we can fight together. They understand why he did it. He didn't do it to hurt other people. He did it to keep his son safe. He did it to keep everyone in the temple safe because he says that the Fire Nation came and found them in the early years of their settling in the Northern Air Temple and they put they put the heat on them basically and he offered a service that could keep them all safe. Yeah, but how many how many other forms of media do you can you think of that you know would say it doesn't matter why you did bad things you did bad things you're done like oh yeah 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 no i i definitely agree but i think what's really great is that that the characters who are listening to him say that can see it and understand that he did what he needed to to protect the ones he loved mm. and that he can recognize his mistakes and try and rectify them as best he can and he does so not just with words but with actions yeah. it just it really struck me that they they give the time and space for that to happen mm. i i feel like so much of media doesn't yeah i mean i think of you know, like the Marvel franchise, they did a whole movie about two characters who had opposing viewpoints and they both thought that they were doing things for the right reason. <laughs> and that literally, like, the events of Civil War carried through and rippled through the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yep. Because yep. neither character could forgive the other. Yeah. And meanwhile, there's this one episode of Avatar that's like, yeah, no, we, you don't have to do that. It, it's cool. Well, I think also the people on the receiving end of, you know, his explanation and his request for forgiveness are Teo and Aang. I mean, Sokka and Katara are are there too, but it's really his son and the Avatar who he is asking forgiveness from. And those are two people who are kindred spirits in practicing empathy and they are the ones who are able to forgive i feel like you very you very much could have had uh, a care the, the mechanist son not forgive him or be angry or run off or something like that you know there are so many other characters that you could see doing that but he has that empathy and that spirit of the air nation in him and it's that love and compassion and the ability to see the best in others that says you can turn this around. You can turn this around right now if you take a stand with us, if you show us how we can fight this. You're the one who's best equipped for it. Bad 
battle at the end? Battle at the end. I love how, like, early on in the show, you were like, yeah, battle at the end. Okay, sure, whatever. And now you're like, battle at the end is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about it now. I'm very much about it now. I didn't realize when I, like, framed it that way early on that, like, no, this is a thing every episode. <laughs> <laughs> I love it though. I love it. It's 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 gotten to be I actually love it as a segment for us. I think it works. It works. Um especially because it really pulls together a lot of pieces. Like battle at the end. I love how the mechanist has no fear about his son going into battle against the Fire Nation because any other show would have been like, You can't because you're different. You need to stay safe or like or played out some kind of storyline like that. But no, he is leading the gliders. Lost your mother all those years ago. I can't lose you, too. Yeah, okay. I just can't, Nemo. (laughs) It would have been such... (laughs) You think you can do these things, but you can't, Nemo. Oh, my God. Exactly. Like, that storyline is so overdone for me that I was like, it's just just natural. Of course he's going to go fight the Fire Nation. Duh. Like, Aang's going. Why wouldn't he go? And he touches that butt. Hmm. He does it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just... Whew, it's just, it just was a very emotional episode for me. I will say, uh, I believe this is on the indefinitive uh, Kelly list of episodes to rewatch. Yeah, I, I would have guessed that. Yeah. This, yeah. this episode's <laughs> important to you. It's very important to me. But I think it's important in so many different ways. We see these mech climbers... We're starting to see war machines. Like, we've seen boats, but this is a war machine. We see how metal is being put to use. And even that the gliders, have, you know, are so rudimentary compared to these tanks that can flip and climb and adapt. These tanks that in this fantasy world of a level of antiquity are yeah. kind of more awesome than our modern tanks. Yes, it's they're so cool. They're so the 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 gyroscopic cockpit. Yes, and that they use water to do balancing in the in the, in the tanks to be able to. Mm-hmm. It, it just it really showed that uh, I feel like the mechanist and Boomy would like if they put their minds together. Okay. Okay. So. I noticed a thing. I didn't put it in the notes, but there is a single frame. I'll try to find a screenshot to send you where the mechanist is like right up in the camera and he's all wild eyed and (laughs) it's a boomy shot. Like I'm pretty sure we saw boomy like, you know, with, you know, his head kind of tilted down and the eyes right there looking into the camera at the character yep. and like asking a question incredulously. And the mechanist does the exact same thing. And it's, it is totally like, here, look, it's booming. There are some of these mad geniuses out there just like changing the game. I am so glad that you, you highlighted the mad genius yeah. through line because it runs so much deeper than I realized. Yeah. They are. Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, these mech climbers. Okay, I kind of wish that, uh, like, I know the mechanist is like, oh, yeah, and there's water in the tanks to balance them out and stuff like that. I feel like he should have gone through, like, a little bit of a description to the gang about, like, what they would be, fa- what they could potentially be facing 
because he built all these things. You know what I mean? I feel instead of like, oh, yeah, I built those two. But then again, I think that also might just be the way his mind works of like he's just constantly thinking up new things that like things can get a little lost in there. You know, the details can get a little fuzzy. So I, I, you know, but I mean, Boomy was the same way. So kind of setting up that eccentric. Yeah, it's, it's very, you know, oh, I'm sure I told you that. I didn't tell you that. Oops. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you remember when we were talking about how, like, remember when Katara couldn't even do a water whip? <laughs> oh, yeah. How quickly she learned water and now bending. She's, and now she's straight up taking out tags. Yeah, and <laughs> I really expected an initial watch, and then again this time around, like, Teo mentions water inside the tanks, and she's like, water? And she jumps right to the ground, and she starts water bending, and like, okay, you're going to take this tank out from the inside out by bending the water inside it. But that's not what she does. She's just like, hey, giant ice cans coming out of the ground, flipping the tanks and crushing them and flipping them and sending them flying. And why not just bend the water inside? Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> that's what, that's what I kind of assumed that she was going to do. But it's The way they built it up, you, you expect, and then she's just like, she just stomps them and it's like why did you why did you need teo to point out that there's water inside before you went like you could have just done this <laughs> and then ang dropped avalanche on the tank. So cool. oh my god katara and ang working together yes. on the front yes Ooh. fighting side We're by starting side to see what a force to be reckoned the two of them can be together and the way they they're each fighting like separate groups of tanks but they're doing so as a cohesive unit. And they have each other's backs, but they're not worried about the other one. Yeah, it's it's very similar to Aang and the Blue Spirit breaking out. It's that same deep connection, unspoken bond. Yes, yes. And they've been practicing together. Like, as such, you know, like they, we've seen them practicing. She's his waterbending master, so they know what each other is capable of. And they're each other's best friend. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then we get the first appearance of the war balloon in action because of Sokka's mechanism to put a lid on hot air. Dropping bomb. Yeah. Okay, Sokka throws a furnace into a huge crevice of natural gas with no hesitation. Like, no flinching. Like, whatever it takes to win. Yeah, that should have taken down the mountain. I just... <laughs> he just... No hesitation. Like, and no hesitation, but also doesn't think as to how how I'm going to be rescued. He knows he'll be safe. And I feel like Sokka also was like, if this is how I go, this is how I go. Like, Sokka was ready. Yeah, I think he has the warrior mentality of like, this would be a good death. Yeah. Yeah. I love how he takes those big moves, though. Like we we've seen before with um, his his ice dodging. Yeah, when like he just takes control. Yeah, he does not flinch in the face of danger. He it just buckles himself right in and goes full steam ahead. It was all a part of his plan. I mean, we had his music. It was his plan. Yep. Yep. Oh, I and I feel like this is another moment where we start to see. Sokka's big battle plans. Now we're we've seen him involve like light trickery, and we've seen him involve different kinds of bending, like 
one kind of bending, then two kinds of bending together. And this is now he's doing modern technology inventions and he's involving all three of all of those elements together and layering them in ways that people haven't. And you have multi-front tactics going on and, and like separate mm-hmm. battle groups and battalions. He's seeing the whole pie show board. So the end of this episode takes an interesting shift because Sokka is so optimistic because they won this battle. They won this battle. They had gliders in the air dropping bombs. Um, they were able to attack the tanks in a way that worked. And they even like used the power of natural gas to, you know, at least keep the temple safe for a little bit longer. And he's optimistic and he says, you know, we have, you know, we have the skies. We control the skies. They might have a strong navy. We can control the skies. And then it transitions to the war balloon being collected by the Fire Nation. But then it transitions back. And you see this look on the mechanist's face that just, it, it just says to me, that was not my first balloon, pal. Like, that was not the first prototype. Like, that was not the first one. There are more out there. And there are more weapons out there that I have made that we haven't even gotten to delve into. And it was very dark for an episode where they won the battle. They won the battle, but, you know, will they win the war? This is just one battle. Well, I think that's part of what this show does so well. And I think that's one of the one of the reasons why we like talking about the battle at the end so much is because it's sort of, for me at least, the battle at the end stands almost always as either a microcosm of the episode that it's in or as a direct contrast of the episode that it's in. And I think, you know, we can we can look back at some of the other battles that we've talked about and divide them into those two categories. And I think the writers very, very expertly intentionally fluctuate between those two Stances to control not only the tone of that episode but of the show as a whole and i think the the times where we win the battle but we feel like we might not win the war or we lose the battle but we have hope those endings just always pack such a punch and i think those endings are what what sow the seeds of people like us sitting and talking and having a level of conversation you know where we read into all of these tiny little details because you know those those seeds have been sown because that 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 use of of tone to to play our emotion is is designed to create that conversation we need to sit and figure out how it is we feel what it is we saw because it wasn't necessarily straightforward it also makes you nervous for what's to come yeah. I feel like the important thing about this is that it puts that seed of doubt into your head that because you could easily be like, oh, well, we have the skies now. Um, you're like, all right, so this war is on pretty level playing field now, right? Like you could make that leap, but the writers don't allow you to because the Fire Nation now has this war balloon and the look on the mechanist's face says, there are some things that I haven't told you about <laughs> that uh, are just as bad. Like, we 
just see that invention. It has been years of him working for the Fire Nation, and he has come up with so many different things that we just see in the temple itself. And it's not going to be that easy. And it also points to that battle that they just won and says, you got so lucky. And it, it very much, I think another thing of looking at Sokka's optimism about it and the mechanist doubt, it shows Sokka the child who's looking at this with optimism and the adult who has lived it and is saying, I think you need to be a bit more cautious because you might be underestimating your opponent. No one wants to pull a Zuko. Yeah. No, they do not. Is there any Zuko in this episode? I don't There's think There's no so. Zuko in this episode other than... No Zuko in this episode. Underestimating your opponent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no Zuko in this episode. And there's like the... One of... One Fire Nation general that like, Aang just like backhands. <laughs> Air slaps. Honestly, like, okay, so that was a really, like, out of, it felt out of character to me, because do we see him do something like that often? Like, I think we not. We don't see it often. I don't know if this is the only time, but. I feel like most of his bodily attacks on people are, if he's using air, it's to push people away, mm-hmm. not to strike. And when he does strike, it's usually later when he's using water bending. Or earthbending. Yeah. This is one of the few instances for me that I can remember where he uses air to strike. Not to push, not to evade, but to strike. Well, how many times do we see him in a position where he needs to defend an air home? Not many. I think he's got a temper. I think if he had a chance in Blue Spirit and he wasn't chained up, he would have straight up done that to Zhao. Oh, probably. <laughs> probably. He does have a temper, but I think the fact that, you know, he's in an air temple is... He very much could have done a push, but I this is very much out of anger. It's not out of protection. It is out of anger. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like, he is surrounded by an environment that makes him angry. Like, mm. he's immersed in it. I think the mechanist is very lucky that Aang did not go into the Avatar state at all because <laughs> <laughs> the last air, air temple sent him into that spiral the mechanist is very lucky that uh knocking down the walls and uh selling fire nation the fire nation weapons did not do that to him good second do the thing julie do the thing <laughs> no we already did that bit we can't recycle that bit every time i do the thing do the thing thank you for listening to the pie show If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash 17. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at thepieshow or email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail.com. Come talk to us before we get to the big big battle at the end of the season. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to be... That's going to be big. Oh, we forgot to talk about our homework. I'm going to be that annoying kid at the end of class who's like, we forgot homework we talked about putting together our lists like our definitive avatar watch lists yes yes dear listeners we did not do we did not do our homework we did not finish our homework because we decided shortly after assigning ourselves our homework that we were going to do at the end of book one after our episode where we cover the the finale that we were going to do an extra episode where we looked at book one as a whole and we'll use that opportunity to talk about 
you know, what episodes from the first season are on our definitive watch list. Yes, yes. My weird watch list that I have mentioned various times that I've never thought to put down on paper, uh, but I now will do that. I've been casually thinking about what, because I don't have a definitive watch list, I have to make it. Um, so I've been like casually thinking about what I'm going to put on it, and I'm having a rough time. And this is going to be a difficult project. But season one is really tight. Like, I'm going to have a hard time. <laughs> I don't think I'm so much saying what episodes should be on it as just, like, trimming episodes off of it. And it's really tough to cut stuff out. So for me, it's going to be a lot of going off of instinct of, like, what do I normally gravitate towards when I'm doing my rewatch? But I know I'm there's at least one more that I'm going to add to that, which is definitely Blue Spirit. So. We shall see how it turns out because I I genuinely don't know how many episodes of season one I watch when I do a rewatch. I genuinely don't know. I have just had this pattern of like, if I want to do a super short rewatch or if I want to do like, you know, like, oh, a rewatch where I pick the highlight of highlights of each season. So it'll be really interesting to see what my Kelly's instincts pick up. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little off track for a second just to like give you some background. But um, in Rise of Kyoshi, like the Earth Nation does have a lot of money, and there is at one point talk of giving economic relief to the Southern Water Tribe that the because the Northern Water Tribe has had more trade because they're closer to the Earth Kingdom and they have the, the ability to build up a navy and uh, due to some political political things uh one guy wanting to be contrary he talks out uh Beifong out of uh providing economic relief for the southern water tribe which just kind of dips them into being more susceptible to uh low income and just it's it's years of being isolated it's it's centuries of being isolated and um not receiving those contracts and not receiving like yeah so it's it's just really interesting i was i was reading that and i was like oh my god that's so interesting to see why the southern water tribe is at so many disadvantages being primed to be conquered Mm -hmm. very much so yeah yeah and how they really don't have a formal navy as opposed to the northern water tribe that we will see so that's like just a side note for you for you but uh it's really cool to this is a conversation for a different time but i wonder like what the history of the world would have looked like had Sozin not done his thing. Because it seems like the world was shifting around that time anyway. Mm-hmm. Honestly, had um, had they not focused their energies on the wrong avatar with Kiyoshi um, and a certain earthbender not been in charge of training the avatar, uh, things very much could have turned the tide for the Southern Water Tribe. Um, it was really just a bunch of pundits talking spite <laughs> of like, that guy says we should do it. I don't think we should, Beifong. <laughs> and of course, it's the Beifongs. I, I do have this thought that like the events of Kyoshi's life happen. And for whatever reason, like Roku is able to stop Tozen. Mm-hmm. I genuinely think that like the Dai Li still would have risen as that cancer in the Earth Kingdom. Agreed. And 
they would have been the ones who take over the world. Agreed. I think they bring this up in another episode, but a lot of the Avatar's job is cleaning up the events of the prior Avatars. Yeah. Of, like, the person before you and their mistakes, you have to clean those, then make your own mistakes. And that next Avatar in the cycle will help try and clean those up. And I think, like, Kuvira's empire, to an extent, was a bit of, like, an inevitability. Not in the sense that it was, like, completely not preventable, but, like, that is the natural direction that the world was heading in well before any of it happened. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same with the Equalist movement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, like, there there are traces of that going back. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what's really interesting when I was reading Kiyoshi is that I'm, like, some of these things about putting the Southern Water Tribe at at disadvantage and, uh, you know, they're like, well, they'd be one of the few left without a formal army. I mean, the Fire Nation has started building theirs. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, not Fire Nation army. Really cool. ba, ba, ba. <laughs> yeah, I started hearing. I saw, I literally saw the opening scene with, like, the Fire Nation attack. Like, the door comes down on the on the boat and all the pointy shoulders. and But, uh. It was just really cool to, like, it's, like, kind of, like, a, a not minorish moment, but, like, you know, if you're thinking forward, you can see it. If you're not, you're, like, why are they spending so much time on just weird politics? Like, but I like that, I like that they can build a world that big. 